When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 257, recording on Thursday, April 19th. I'm Jeff O'Neill. I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky, coming to you from bookriot.com. Hello, hello. We're back. Uh, it's Pulitzer Week, which it weirdly is. doesn't feel like the lead story. Oh, we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. Um, but we're back. I wanted to say, I, I was listening to last week's show for a reason um, that's boring uh, to make sure I got someone's name right, but I realized that we talked about Annotated's new episode, but didn't really say it because I was worried I didn't want to spoil it, blah, blah, blah. But if you haven't listened to it by now, I just want to mention that Annotated episode nine, the most recent one, is all about the Handbook for Mortals, New York Times bestseller list hacking situation that went on. And it's so bananas. It's so bananas. And we, we use that kind of as a, you know, there's a lot about Lanny Serum and Handbook for Mortals and all that stuff. But then we kind of use that as the thin end of the wedge to talk about the art, you know, the, the, the structural idiosyncrasies of the New York Times bestsellers, why they could do it, why we care about bestsellers, things like that. I think it's an interesting show. Talked to a lot of people um, related to it, someone who went to one of our events, Phil Stamper, who was kind of the, the patient zero of the Twitter investigation of like what this book is. Talked to someone at Vox. Um, that went to the bestseller list, talked to Lila Shapiro, who interviewed and did a profile of Lanny Serum for Vulture. Um, the most ep- the most interviews I've ever done for an annotated episode. And frankly, I had one I didn't even use because there was too much stuff. So jam-packed. Go check it out. I think you like this show. You'll get a deep dive on those shenanigans. And like we had people say on Slack channel, I could listen to the st- stories about that story for a million years. It feels like just you. given how crazy that story is, there's probably going to be some kind of follow-up. But just it feels a little yeah. bit inevitable. <laughs> Yeah, and and I'll give you, here's a special nugget for those of you guys listening to this show um, that, you know, I wanted to do something with this. I didn't know what to do with it, but two two nuggets about, there there have been historical bookseller list shenanigans, and the one that really jumped out to me is that Jacqueline Suzanne, who wrote Valley of the Dolls, was the first author to take heat for... I, I, we wouldn't even call it gaming the New York Times bestseller list now, but like trying to influence her place on the list by just telling her friends and family to pre-order and buy the book the first week. And that is so Like That's all that she now. did, but it became like a scandal about um, Valley of the Dolls that she was actively saying, in order to get on the list, if you go buy the book this week, pre-order it, buy it from, I think, I think she even went and said, go buy it from this store or that store. Like authentically buy it, like not do any of these other shenanigans, but like pay the money for the real book that you will keep and own which now is kind of standard practice for authors on social media, especially, right? Like, my book's coming out. It'd be great if you pre-ordered it and buy it and then rated and reviewed it because it's good for all the algorithms. But there was a point in time which that was controversial, which I found fascinating. So that's just that's, that's special for you guys listening to this show. So that's Valley of the Dolls. Um, there's another one. I'll save another one. for It's, it's a longer story. But, there's a lot of good uh, nuggets. Basically, a lot of good nuggets. Anyway, so there's go listen to that. All right, let's do a sponsor. We got well, good news. We only got one sponsor this week. Let's take care of it. Give it its day in the sun. 
and we'll talk about Pulitzer's. All right, here we go. Our first and only sponsor this week is The Girl Who Smiled Beads by Clementine Wamaria and Elizabeth Weil. Uh, Clementine Wamaria was just six years old when her mother and father began to speak in whispers and their neighbors were beginning to disappear. Um, in 1994, she and her 15-year-old sister Claire fled the Rwandan massacre and spent the next six years migrating through seven African countries searching for safety. They were perpetually hungry they were imprisoned and abused, and they endured and escaped refugee camps. When Clementine was 12, she and her sister were granted refugee status in the United States, and Clementine was taken in by a family who raised her as their own. On the surface, she seemed to live the American dream. She attended private school, she took up cheerleading, and ultimately she graduated from Yale. Yet the years of being treated as less than human and of going hungry and seeing death could not be erased. In The Girl Who Smiled Beads, Clementine, Wamaria, and Elizabeth Weil provoke us to look beyond the label of victim and recognize the power of imagination to transcend even the most profound injuries and aftershocks. This is devastating yet beautiful. The Girl Who Smiled Beads is a powerful testament to Clementine's commitment to constructing a life on her own terms. So again, that is The Girl Who Smiled Beads by Clementine Wamaria and Elizabeth Weil. Um, follow up. I want to I want to now see a play about this. <laughs> I, now, now I'm getting super meta. Like so we talked about the lawsuit that the Harper Lee estate is bringing against the Aaron Sorkin Broadway production of To Kill a Mockingbird that's being produced by Scott Rudin. Basically, for those of you who don't remember or didn't hear the first time, they are saying that his adaptation is not, quote-unquote, faithful to the spirit of To Kill a Mockingbird. And, you know, I don't think we talk... I don't know if it says what they want. Do they want damages? Do they want it taken off the board? Do they want to call it to to mock a killing bird? Like, yeah, I mean, I don't... Do they want to... To call, mock a I don't know what they bird. want exactly, but... A prominent Broadway producer, uh, uh, probably the only twist besides the resolution that we talk about on the show because it's so interesting is that a producer has offered to stage a single performance of the Sorkin adaptation inside a federal courthouse to prove that the play is faithful to the novel, which really is awesome for like 9,000 ways, but not the least of which is, I love plays within a play, mm-hmm. but also since so much of the play takes place in a courthouse... <laughs> You're in a courthouse. Watching a You're play about there. a courthouse. Like there's not even a fourth wall to break because you, <laughs> you, are, you are the fourth wall if you're in this. And there's a jury. I guess there would be a judge. that Would the judge play the judge? Could you get, that probably wouldn't work. That's, probably that's a little on the nose. Sort of it's a little stuff. on the nose. A little on the nose. But I think it's incredible. And I hope this happens. I hope it happens Whatever else too. happens with this story, I hope this happens. Like, I need this to happen just to know that it's happening in the world. That there is a Broadway production being mounted inside a Manhattan courtroom over Harper Lee shenanigans of all things. But then I really need the video to exist. <laughs> Like, just to see, like, and would it have to be the real actors that are cast in it or would they use other people? Like, I'm, I'm not super shipping the notion of Jeff Daniels playing Atticus Finch, but I like the idea Mm. of Jeff Daniels as Atticus Finch in the play, inside the play, in the courtroom, inside the courtroom. Yes. (laughs) 
It's incredible. Well, the way these things normally go is, I guess he's already signed on to play the part, so it's in production, so he's probably got the lines all ready to go. But as you're getting a show ready for Broadway, as I know, because a friend of the show, Jeremy, uh, helps us with annotated, he writes musicals and does this all the time, is usually there's a reading which you get some actors to, to read the parts, but they may not be cast for the actual production. So they, they, I don't know if they have stands-ins or the people that could do it right away. Um, the, the other thing that's going on here, too, is that Rudin has countersued the Lee estate for challenging the adaptation because... Hard to get investors. Hard to get investors as, you know, when you don't know if the thing is going to exist. So it's really put um, them in a bond. They've already, I'm sure, shelled out a lot of money to, to make the thing happen. It's a huge mess. And the only the only whipped cream on this pile of mud is that we might get an adaptation of To Kill a Mockingbird as evidence for determining whether or not... which. I mean, it's absurd, but it kind of makes sense in the same way too. Because, like, if the if a judge has to rule whether or not the play is violating the spirit, you kind of have to see how it's performed, not just the right. words on the page. I guess. Yeah, I think that uh, the the embodiment of that character makes a big difference, um, and yeah, the core of it was around how I remember from the first piece about this mm-hmm. that the central objection that the Harper Lee estate is making is about the depiction of Atticus Finch and his character and it sounds like maybe Sorkin has worked in some of the Atticus Finch of Ghost at a Watchman um, before he evolved into the Atticus Finch of To Kill a Mockingbird and that the Lee estate is not pleased with that Tanya Carter mm. is not pleased I actually this is the thing that I want you know how when you're watching a courtroom thing on TV they sh- yes. the, the camera pans to like the people sitting in the peanut gallery I want to watch yes. Tanya Carter's face while oh. this gets performed in the courtroom like just bouncing See, back and forth between like her face <laughs> and the judge and like Aaron Sorkin sitting in the corner looking smug <laughs> Yes, I like it. What I want is the same pan, but going from the person playing the judge up to sitting above him, the actual judge watching the <laughs> fake judge. That's the pan. And then the real jury being panned to the people playing the jury. And then the real prosecuting attorneys being like, it's a fa- it's, I want all of it's it. It's bonkers. I need this to happen. If you do I it hope just right, you might. Yes. If you do it right, you might create a rip in the space-time continuum. <laughs> like right at the center of the whole thing, there might be like a little pinprick in the fabric of space-time. Um, that I, you know, which itself would be very interesting. I would say. Uh, I just, anyway, let's, let's see. I would never have guessed this that this would be how this story would progress. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, let's see. Basically, the, the, the nut quote from Rudin, I think, is, has rendered it impossible for the play to premiere as scheduled in December 2018. Unless the dispute is resolved in the immediate future, the play will be canceled. Uh, fascinating, fascinating, mm-hmm. fascinating, fascinating stuff. If, you know, and also, if you live in, this is in a New York, he's suing in New York. So this was not the Alabama suit, which they're trying to have dismissed. The countersuit is in New York mm. and it's easier to get Broadway talent in New York, but it could be that you could go attend this if it's open to the public. What if it's just performed by like community theater? That would be so great. There's like, (laughs) there's like Mr. Dale. That's like the orthodontist (laughs) for the town. Yes. Playing Agus Finch. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. He was, um, (laughs) yeah, he was in our town and, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, to, 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 uh, he looks, to wild acclaim in the Catskill Community <laughs> Theater's production of Bridge on the River Quad. He looks like Taylor um, from anyway. the Gilmore Girls. 
<laughs> oh yes, I want that too. And now I want the the the, the Stars Hollow Community Theater production. Yes, yeah, that's of, it. That's just all I need of <laughs> Sorkin's. But for the record, for the law. Anyway, so there's enough silliness about that. But in all fairness, we didn't come up with this. I wish we would have thought I of this too. idea. I wish that we had been like, what if they performed the play? What if they did it? Hmm. Now we know. This was just right. outside my for us, imagination. that's the main story. Yep, that's for the us, <laughs> that was the thing we wanted to talk about. Now it's on to the Pulitzer Prizes. Which were surprising. They were. They, okay. Yes, they were surprising. Well, the ones a week. Yes. Well, okay. Honestly, we follow the fiction prize. Correct. I, I, I'm not speaking out of turn, right? No. Like, we're interested in the nonfiction prize, but I, we were saying in uh, their back channels that, like, there's so many nonfiction books, that one's impossible to predict. Usually, the Pulitzer Prize, for, the Pulitzer for fiction comes from a relatively small pool of, you know, there's a couple of favorites, and oftentimes you can guess. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like about half the time we get this right. Or we're, we're you know, the finalists, two out of three finalists we, we had on our radar. This was not one of those years. It was not. Uh, what, what one? What, what one, Rebecca? Tell Less the people what. by Andrew Sean Greer, which I remember when it came out. I think it sponsored all the books one week. It was kind of like half on it my radar. It sponsored Annotated. Yeah. Season one of Annotated had a spot on Annotated. I heard people I, say I like nice Andrew things Sean about Greer. it. Um, I've read, the, I recommended when it came out, The Confessions of Max Tivoli up and down the waterfront a whole bunch of times. Mm. I read and liked, but didn't love The Impossible Lives of Greta Wells. Um... But this book I hadn't read uh, because I don't read a lot of front list fiction these days. Um, and it won, which shocked everyone. There's a very charming, I'll see if I can find it put in the show notes, Twitter thread yeah. from Greer, who was teaching in Italy, <laughs> who didn't believe it. And so called up Michael, Michael Shabin, Shabin. And Michael Shabin was like screaming to him on the phone it's real. that it's happening. Yeah, so. Um, so that's, that's delightful. I had to, and I Googled like what the book is about because I was yeah. not sure. So it's, um, this is the synopsis straight from Amazon. If you are also wondering what the book is about, who says you can't run away from your problems? You are a failed novelist about to turn 50. A wedding invitation arrives in the mail. Your boyfriend of the past nine years is engaged to someone else. You can't say yes. It would be too awkward. And you can't say no because it would look like defeat. On your desk are a series of invitations to half-baked literary events around the world. How do you arrange to skip town you accept them all what could possibly go wrong um so Mm. starts off there um the character arthur less will almost fall in love in paris almost fall to his death in berlin barely escape to a moroccan ski chalet from a saharan sandstorm accidentally book himself as the only writer in residence at a christian retreat center in southern india and encounter on a desert island in the arabian sea the last person on earth he wants to face but he will also find his first love, who will be his last. Uh, that sounds... Actually, I'm into this. It, it sounds like fun. It, it sounds yeah. fun. I guess that... You don't usually get I fun. I guess the funness of it is not what... Yes, exactly right. Yeah, this sounds... And, and not this is not a diminutive term at all. I love books that do this. But this sounds like something that I would want to read like on vacation, you know, this sounds like a novel that I could sink into on a flight and just enjoy the story and be like compelled along by the characters. And that's like, I, that's a great thing for fiction to do. Typically though, the Pulitzer, like these book awards tend to go to like capital S and capital F serious fiction. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's, I think that's a nice shift to see this go to a book that seems to be light and to have a sense of humor 
about itself, but very surprising. And as you were saying, no one yeah. was more surprised by this than the author himself. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, the, found, it sounds on its surface, and again, we're, we're trying to relate our reaction without trying to crap on the book because yeah. we don't we're not interested in that at all but it sounds like a fairly decent read alike to like where'd you go bernadette which is a both book both of you you and i really like you know like it's a midlife crisis kind of situation mm-hmm. comedic romp Some capers, you know, yeah. a, a little outsized things going on which I'm here for all oh, those yeah. kinds of books. Like that's the kind of book I'd like to read. But as a Pulitzer winner, if where you go, Bernadette would have won, we'd be equally shocked. I guess. It's yes. Yeah. No. I think that's a great uh, comparison. Books that have like zany fun just don't often end up winning these kinds of awards. Um, and I would like yeah. to see more of that. I think that there's great and interesting stuff going on in fiction that's not super serious and everyone's dying all the time. Um, Mm -hmm. And I'm looking forward to reading this and sort of finding out for myself what's going on there. But just really interesting. I always am also fascinated by the way that the Pulitzer works where you don't know what any of the finalists are until the winners are announced. (laughs) And then you also find out what the final, the the other finalists were at the same time. Um, So the other two finalists for the fiction prize were In the Distance by Hernan Diaz, which I'm not familiar with at all, and The Idiot by um, Elif Batuman, which I know Liberty loved. I've heard great things about, mm-hmm. um, but I haven't I picked have up on my own. And those, I think, are also both surprising choices, or at least they, were, they weren't obvious choices for folks kicking around who they thought it was going to be. Um, I know on the Insiders mm-hmm. Slack, there was a lot of sort of pulling for and guessing that Pachinko by Min Jin Lee would be either yep. the winner or at least on the list of finalists. That was a big one last year. I didn't have any super great guesses other than Sing Unburied Sing by Jasmine Ward, but I felt pretty confident about that one. (laughs) I mean, that would be the... I mean, that was what we were guessing, and that would have been the predictable Mm -hmm. winner. And again, that also sounds like we're crapping on all these. We don't mean to do any... We're not trying to crap on any of these. But that would have been one where, like, yes, that got a claim. It's in the right mode. It feels of the moment. It has kind of the right register that you'd expect of a Pulitzer winner. The Idiot, also, I should mention, is a comic novel. Mm. Uh, it, it, but I for some reason that got a little bit more buzz. I felt like if the idiot would have won, I would have been less surprised um, than than less by Andrew Sean Greer. And then the other one by Hernan Diaz is not a book I'd heard. A coffee house press book. It actually also sounds interesting. Also a travel kind of a Romana Clef. It sounds like a little oh, bit. Oh, interesting. Um, an interesting group uh, yeah. together there. Uh, anything? What do you, do you, do you? Any of the other winners jump out to you? you know, I mean, it's kind of the 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 de rigueur general nonfiction poetry and biography ones. Like some, a couple of them I've heard of. I haven't read any of them, but mm-hmm. they all feel like the kinds of things you would expect to win. Yeah, Frank Bedard, you know, uh, one for poetry, the collected poems, Prairie Fires, the Colin Colleen Fra- or excuse me, Caroline Fraser's. Uh, biography, uh, Laura Ingalls Wilder, general nonfiction is locking up our own crime and punishment in black America. Feels of the moment mm-hmm. about mass incarceration and race. Feels like something people are actively thinking about and interested in right there. I've heard of that book and nothing but raves from it before. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's that's the the Pulitzer winners. Yeah, you know, um, I think notably for, uh, the the big notable one in the literature you know, section here is the music winner, really, this year. Yeah, that, right. Um, Kendrick right, Lamar's right, right. album Damn. One um, and the like. I love reading this 
prize committee's description of Kendrick Lamar, but um, a virtuosic song collection unified by its vernacular authenticity and rhythmic dynamism uh, that offers affecting vignettes, capturing the complexity of modern African-American life. But the first time that a hip hop artist has won a Pulitzer, certainly I saw Roxanne Gay say on Twitter that like this is deserving and also Beyonce's Lemonade album should have won a Pulitzer. And I would like to co-sign, co-sign that. But I think that is... Uh, like Kendrick Lamar's work is really important. It's talk about being of the moment um, and like finger on the pulse and all of those other phrases that we use to mean like this, uh, uh, this piece of art is really about what is happening right now. Mm-hmm. Hard to beat that album. And it's really cool to see a Pulitzer committee acknowledge that like, it's usually also, you know, s- serious music that takes itself seriously that wins these kinds of things. And it's, not it's, that it's, Kendrick it's Lamar neo, doesn't I mean, take his classical, right? Yeah. I don't know enough about the current music scene, but I was scrolling through because like, I was like, is a popular artist ever won before? And really the closest like Wynton Marcellus, mm-hmm. which is jazz and then Ornette Coleman. I wouldn't really call that. It's not pop music, frankly. Right. It, just, it just isn't. Um, I wonder if, I wonder how influenced or... Was there any loosening of the pickle jar um, for this from Dylan's Nobel win? Oh, interesting. Because I saw some people say this is the first major literary prize that a popular musician ever mm-hmm. won. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we yeah, popular I mean, like I, in the. You know, t- I don't want to get crazy, but well, I think though popular in their own time, you know, like Bob Dylan didn't win the Pulitzer in the seventies. Yeah, yeah, right. He didn't. He didn't win it in uh, nineteen sixty-eight. Yeah. That, that's for sure. Um, maybe, so, maybe so. But it's... in terms of pop music. Pop music writ large. Uh, a welcome change from my yeah, point of view. I, I think it's probably, very Probably cool. I would guess there's a certain, I, I would imagine, and I could understand it, like much like the blowback that the man Booker is getting for letting Americans in, mm. I would imagine the classical music community is not thrilled, if only because this is their time to shine. Where Kendrick Lamar, popular music, there's, they're popular for a reason, I don't know. Mm. I, I don't really care about that, but I'd imagine that that community would not. Are they thrilled by this? Because like there are not that many places to to highlight contemporary classical. I don't know. Mm. That just the thought that occurred to me yeah. is like. I think I it's kind I of. I haven't read any of these, so I'm just guessing. You know, I think you're right that there, there probably are some of those objections, but it feels to me like they're probably along the same kind of tension as that tension that exists between like, how come I can't get my work of popular fiction that's sold a million copies to be reviewed by the New York times. I would like to be, you know, like that you can't get, mm-hmm. um, commercial success and the literary accolades at the same time. Like, you know, we, we know we, everybody listening to this show knows who the writers are that talk about these things. Um, yes. And right. that Kendrick Lamar certainly has commercial success and has certainly been recognized in venues other than by this Pulitzer committee for the kind of art and the quality of the art that he's making. Um, but yeah. I, I am all for the blending of commercially successful and credit for great art when we're credit is due so mm-hmm. I kind of don't care if the classical art like if if you want your classical stuff to if you really want to be recognized make good enough interesting neoclassical stuff that it competes with Kendrick Lamar frankly for how oh yeah sure yeah, yeah. and I frankly I feel the same way about the man booker mm-hmm. uh I mean let the I mean if it's it is what it is like if you want to beat the Americans beat the Americans yeah be um, relevant that's, that's <laughs> my particular take on it uh 
but you know, also, you know, I feel like so many of these categories, like they br- they break up biography and history. Could you have one for pop music and mm-hmm. classical? I mean, could you do two Pulitzers? Would that kill you? Would it kill you? It's fifteen grand. I- I'm sure your publicist for this costs ten times that. Uh, anyway, that's a different rant <laughs> for a different day. Um, I'm sure Kendrick Lamar will appreciate the fifteen large. Um, all right. So the most interesting thing about the literature uh, Pulitzer was the music. Yep. Pulitzer. <laughs> it turns out. The, I guess I feel like I feel like I should be more interested. Not I, who cares if I'm interested in the less book itself, which I'm nominally interested. I feel like I should be more interested in it winning. But I don't have anything interesting to say about it. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I don't know I what else like to do with that. I need to have read it to figure out yeah. what's interesting about it being the winner. So maybe ask me in a couple of weeks. <laughs> Right, yeah. Do they tell us the judges yet? Oh, I don't. Do we remember? So. Don't they usually tell us the judges after the fact? Uh C twenty eighteen board members. Uh, hmm, this is just the board that yeah. I'm looking at. It's this is this is good podcast. So let, me Google stuff. <laughs> let me tell you about um, the internet I'm looking at. Yeah, I can't. See yeah, because I guess list of judges. Th- that thing I've come to find about the Pulitzer that's as interesting, maybe nay, even more interesting than the actual winner is who are the people that record. Mm-hmm. So, like the, how the Pulitzer work is, you have a rotating committee of people related to the book world that then recommend books to the larger Pulitzer board. We've talked about this, whatever year that was, mm-hmm. when there was no award, which apparently the, the larger board gave the big stanky boot to all the um, <laughs> recommended titles. <laughs> I think, yeah, that was and like so, way back in like 2012, I think. Yeah. So who is recommending what to whom? Is That is the Pulitzer. I mean, that, for all else that we talk about it, that's the Pulitzer Prize. Mm-hmm. It's like this small group of people recommending a selected group of books to a wider group of people that vote. I think that wider board votes on all of these things. Like they're, they're getting finalists um, from all of these, the criticism, commentary, feature writing prize, so on and so forth. So anyway, there you go. Uh, go check it out. If you've read less, choose an email, podcast at bookwrite.com. Love to hear about it. All right. Tech stuff. Yay, tech stuff. Can we do tech stuff? been a while since we had uh, one that was like actually interesting <laughs> yeah before we get to the the tech thing i just a, a quick note um meta book world stat that we had never heard before uh amazon released this week maybe even yesterday that it has 100 million amazon prime subscribers which is a number they have never reported before um it's it's that's a global number and they've been up for 13 years mm-hmm. i don't know i I don't know if I would have thought this is more, more or less. I wouldn't have a a yardstick. I know that a darn high percentage of the people in my circle of life do Mm -hmm. Amazon Prime. Um, I thought was interesting is there was, I don't think it's in this link that I dropped in the show notes, Rebecca, that you can see, but it it lined up how that compares to other subscription services, which Uh. I thought was fascinating. Like Netflix has 125 million paid subscribers worldwide. If you would ask me if there's more Prime or Netflix... I would have had a hard time guessing. So that felt, I don't know, salient to me. What I would have guessed about Netflix Prime or Netflix versus mm-hmm. Prime, I guess, is something I thought you should care about. <laughs> as soon as it came out of my mouth, I was like, that's boring. No one cares. <laughs> um, but Spotify, 87 million subscribers, uh-huh. which is a lot. That is a lot. And then Apple Music, 40 million subscribers. Oh, that's if surprising. If you told me, to me that Apple Music is almost half Amazon Prime, I think I would be shocked by that. That is the most interesting number, number that you've said so far. That Oh, really? Tell, tell me more I'm about that. I'm surprised that the Apple Music thing is that high. Like and maybe mm. that's just that the circle, my internet circle at least is people who enjoy being, you know, like 
iTunes just keeps getting worse and worse. And why would I subscribe Mm. to an Apple Music thing when I already Mm. have Spotify or Prime Music or Pandora? Like, you know, the Apple subscription service came out much later than the other many of the other music subscription and streaming services. Um, So I'm just kind of I'm just surprised by that, that it's almost Mm. half. Yeah. Hmm. I would have guessed much. I would have guessed probably closer to a quarter. Yeah. Um, yeah, about 100 million. I don't know. They don't break it down by uh, country or anything like that. Um, it's a big number, though. That is a mm-hmm. big, big number. And I think somewhat, maybe it's properly rated by people who do such things, but when people talk about Amazon's dominance, I know from my own anecdote data, the prime thing is real mm-hmm. in terms of lock-in. Um and using it and knowing you don't have to pay for shipping in two, three days and so on and so forth. Like that is a real incentive that is hard to, it's hard for other people to match. Um, and that they bundle in a bunch of the other, you know, the, the movie services. Like when you think about it, it's a super weird product. You get free shipping and you get uh, the man in the high castle. <laughs> like it's a weird product. <laughs> like, like that's a weird combo. Right. Um, so I don't, I don't know is it because it's just a big it's just a big Easter basket full of value that not all of it relates to each other, but I guess it's working. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd love to know maybe this is something we could do quickly. If if for those of you who are on Amazon Prime, like why do you use it? Is it the shipping or you get the shipping because you're signing up to watch um, Mozart in the Jungle or whatever else it might be? Like what what's the what's what's the thin of the wedge that got your camel under the tent? Uh, mixing my, um, <laughs> what is happening over you know there? What? Do you know that phrase, the the nose and the, the the camel's nose under the tent? I do, like but just the, the, it was to the, get a camel into a tent, you got to get the nose in first. Was, so the, the hardest thing is to get the nose. Yeah, in. yeah, and it was just the mixing of metaphors. Let me tell you and about like, camels and tents, Rebecca. Can we talk about camels and tents and how difficult they are to get? <laughs> and ends of wedges, and yeah, I well, just I don't know. It was a lot, Jeff. That was a lot of metaphors. It's in a one metaphorical place. bundle, much like Amazon Prime. <laughs> they may not be related, but all of those metaphors have value. Just bundle them together; they're worth more. Hmm. You decouple the price proposition from the price. That's what bundling does. Okay. All right, let's move uh, on. Now let's that I've returned from my fugue about. state, why don't you tell me about Google Books and something totally that makes sense? <laughs> so Google has launched a new thing called Talk to Books, which is a way to get answers on the internet. It's powered by AI, and the AI tool scans every sentence in 100,000 volumes of Google Books to generate a list of likely responses with the relevant passages in bold. So mm-hmm. and I've been meaning to try this out myself before this show, and I didn't quite get to it. But um, it says in this piece from Quartz that talk to books will tackle any query you have, however trivial, esoteric, or abstract. So if you ask it, how can I stop thinking and fall asleep? Um, and I swear, Jeff, this is in the article. It is not mm. a thing that I'm saying to poke at you <laughs> um, about mm-hmm. falling asleep at night. But let's just say that you were interested in turning off your brain and going to sleep. You could ask, talk to books, and it would give you passages from things like self-hypnosis for dummies <laughs> and mm. thriving at college, make great friends, keep your faith, and get ready for something that whose title gets cut off in this piece. Um but that you can give yourself reassuring messages that you could gradually fall asleep or you could send your mind to do something restful. Um, If you ask it, (laughs) what should I have for dinner? You'll get an answer like, 
Is it late in the afternoon and you still have no idea what to make for dinner? Dinner can be stressful when you don't plan ahead. So like, <laughs> it's, it sounds to me like talk to books will validate your feelings more than it will actually answer your questions. Super weird, right? <laughs> you can ask it, what is love? Um, and it will give you a quote from The Invention of Autonomy, the, A History of Modern Moral Philosophy by Jerome Schneewind, which sounds like it was made up just for the good place. Um about what genuine yeah. love is. This is, I feel like, not going to actually be useful, but might be quite entertaining. Yeah, I feel like it's kind of like a real fancy magic eight ball. Yeah. Like, it doesn't actually mean anything, but, like, your reactions to the non-meaning might be more entertaining. <laughs> it's like a... The first thing I thought shock. about this is, like, wasn't this what basically Bartlett's familiar quotations is and was? Like, mm. it'd be a big book of quotations. You'd look up, I don't know, um, optimism, and he'd give you a bunch of, like, Henry James quotes or something, yeah. actually, that... He didn't nope. know Henry James quotes about optimism, but you get what I'm saying right there. Is like, so in that way, I guess that's an interesting idea. Um, it's trying in a way to granularize and expand what basically the old subject category in the Library of Congress you would be like, you know, a, a way to get at the content mm -hmm. of a book. But this is going all the way down the sentence or paragraph level. So I can see how it would be fun. Maybe there's a serendipitous, or I didn't know this thing existed. I feel like you could build a fun party game you could. based on this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, like maybe if you whispered to talk to Google mm. or talk to books, like something, and then you then the, the whole group got to hear, and you had to reverse engineer, like what was the query <laughs> <laughs> that resulted in this particular, um, this particular oh, result? That's the but you know what? I like, I like bonker stuff like yeah. this. I, and I don't know if this is good, but I like people trying yeah. stuff like it's, this. That's like the nerdiest dinner party game ever, but it sounds great. Uh, they mm -hmm. distinguish in this yeah. in the piece here in course that this is about semantic search, which searches based on meaning rather than on keywords or phrases. So it's looking for like what's going on in sort of your natural language use. And they even do mm -hmm. note here that this is best used as a book discovery or an inspiration gathering tool that you that yeah. could be used like for brainstorming new angles on a topic but you're probably actually not going to walk away with a lot of tips about how to fall asleep at night or real mm -hmm. answers to what love is but it'll give you something to noodle on in the meantime i do mm -hmm. think it's it's cool and interesting and you could maybe if you asked you know what is love and you got enough quotes from enough books you might come up with some good ones um but it does make me think too. I mean, again, I think this is before we the book riot was up and going in earnest about the controversy about Google scanning all the books and making mm -hmm. the search results available. And maybe people who do harder core research than I do use this thing. But it's weird how that like this is the thing it's turned into. Like right. all that effort and like kind of a random effect generator that's like okay, semantic natural language. Like hit all the AI buzzwords. Like mm -hmm. congratulations. But like this is the best thing we could come up with is sort of like a random quote generator based right. on topics like. You can do that in Goodreads. Uh, right. It feels like we should have been more. And also they got Ray Kurzweil to unveil it, who's like a futurist weirdo who like eats 500 pills a day because he's going to live forever. Oh, like, that's I don't know, him? Just, oh, yeah. yeah, that's him. That's him. So it just feels a little bit like sound and fury signifying nothing. And it's really like, yeah, keyword search. <laughs> Congratulations. I don't know. I don't know. It's too bad, I guess. Um there we go. All right. Uh, I'm here for okay. it if anybody wants to submit their own queries to talk to books and tell us yeah. what answers you get. Let's end on the scheme. The scheme. The scheme. <laughs> 
<laughs> which we were joking which about. Which is before. actually so, called the scheme. The scheme. Well, this is an awesome program. Super good idea that Penguin Random House UK is putting on. Oh, there's a link to the show notes. It's called the scheme. And basically what they're trying to do is get more um, diverse representative people into the publishing industry. And it is a um, an early career program which values ideas and potential over experience and qualifications. Uh, they have 10 paid editorial traineeships on offer. I'm assuming that's like an internship. I don't know. Uh, I don't have my uh, babblefish English to English um, translator fish in my ear. Starting in September 2018 for six months, it's a chance to experience life in a publishing house to find out what editorial work is like and to build the basics you'll need to start a career in publishing. Uh, so if you're, if you're in the UK and um, if you are from a, a BAME, which is Black, Asian, or Minority Ethnic Community, and or from a socially economic disadvantaged background, you can find more details and you will be eligible. Do not worry if you don't know the first thing about publishing. You just need an interest in storytelling and enthusiasm for new ideas and a desire to communicate those ideas. I think this is exactly the kind of thing mm-hmm. they should be yes. doing. I don't know if they should call it the scheme because in, in American English, the scheme is kind of like, you know, Mr. Burns hands. That's exactly There's a little bit what of that, I was like going to say. Scheme. Right. Um, we've been told, I guess we talked about a version of this last year that was called A Scheme or something. And we had... Um, one of our, our wonderful UK listeners tells you guys, we got it doesn't sound as nefarious in yeah. the US. We got explained that it actually just means more like a plan. But as I said before, well, you know what? In the US, pants are pants. They aren't whatever <laughs> like naughty bits they are over in the UK. I've never quite understood it. Um, but you know what? The scheme in here means you're, it's, like a, it's like a heist. It's like you're trying to get away with something um, a little bit. But this is a great program. I would love someone out there that listens to this show that's a, you know, kind of a, a civilian interested in books, maybe looking for a new career path or wants to get in publishing that you'd be up. Uh, please, please go enter this. Um, yes. I'd love to hear to success you. stories. If you know someone that did this, I'd love to hear about this. Cause like, this is the, um, this is the thin end of the camel as I the so thin- accurately put it earlier in the show. <laughs> Uh, to getting more people into the publishing world. <laughs> uh, we can't actually end there. We have two quick things to do. The first is to remind... Oh, yes. Oh, okay. All right. We can't end we with gotta, the thin end of the camel. All right, fine, we can't fine. end with the thin end of the camel, but you can hold on to that. We just need to remind our good friends okay. listening to the show that we're still giving away 15 oh, of yes. the best new mysteries of the year so far. All of them are from diverse authors, meaning people of color and LGBTQ authors. The giveaway is open until May 9th. It includes titles mm. like Down the River Unto the Sea by Walter Mosley, Killing in C-Sharp by Alexia Gordon, Death at the Durbar by Arjun Raj Gained, and many more. If you would like to enter, you can do that at bookriot.com slash mystery giveaway. Again, that is open through May 9th. You'll win 15 of the best new mysteries of the year, all from people of color and LGBTQ authors. Bookriot.com slash mystery giveaway. And just because it's been a long time since we had a moment of delight on this podcast, because ah, yes. the world is a little light on the delightful moments these days. Mm. Our moment of delight is that there is a new thing called story time in space, which is exactly what you think it is. The Global Space <laughs> Education Foundation is making videos that are available on YouTube of astronauts reading books to kids. And so you can hang out with your kid and watch an astronaut read a children's story. And I watched a couple of these earlier. It's like exactly what my heart needed. Basically, nothing is cooler than your bedtime story is coming from outer space. Mm. 
Uh, so we'll have a link to that in the show notes as well. What if they beamed us the production of To Kill a Mockingbird <laughs> from space? <laughs> they build a courtroom inside the International Space Station. It's like it's like one of those old. It's like I'm sure there's like an old SNL skit or something where I used to like. What about Romeo and Juliet in space? Yeah. What about To Kill a Mockingbird, but in space? <laughs> it's like, all of them. I, actually, you know what? I'd watch both. Of those. I totally would too. I totally would watch both of those. That's our show. Uh, email one. us about some of this ridiculousness at podcast at bookriot.com. <laughs> I guess I'd especially like to know if you have opinions. If you've read, especially less by Andrew Sean Greer, mm-hmm. um, help us out there. Uh, if you if you have any experience with the scheme, uh, any questions about that, or you know some no information we should say about it, uh, I'd like to I'd like to support that program, get the word out, um, and find some good folks uh, to to try that. Um, that's our show. We will talk to you next week. Have a good one.